Hey folks, you're listening to How to Win a Campaign, where you'll get an insider's perspective that teaches you not only how to win campaigns, but also how to build movements. I'm Joe Fold. And I'm Martin Diego Garcia, and you can find us at The Campaign Workshop on Instagram and Threads. Welcome and thanks for listening to this episode of How to Win a Campaign, Season 4. So Martin, on the last episode, we talked with Brandon Graham of NAMI about grassroots movement building. So if you haven't listened yet, make sure you go check it out. Absolutely. Super fascinating. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing the role of media in building movements with advice about how to effectively use traditional media for advocacy efforts and potentially some mistakes to avoid and some tips on how to best use your storytelling in traditional media. First of all, this is a really interesting topic for me. When I was managing political campaigns, I was lucky enough to do press on the campaigns that I managed. So I love talking about traditional media. I especially love talking about earned media. And Maria Urbina, her input is awesome. And she's always engaged with traditional media throughout her career. And she has a really great understanding of how to use media as a way to build movements and to inspire folks to care about movements. So super excited here. Yeah, she's a super dear friend. Our careers have crossed paths a couple of times. So it was a really fun interview. And before we dive into traditional media matters, Joe, can you take a step back and really define for our listeners, when we say traditional media, right, there's a number of different forms of media out there. What are we actually talking about in this episode? So traditional media is television and newspapers and radio is really what we're talking about and mainly talking about the earned media aspect of that. We'll talk a little bit about the paid aspect of it too, but really about those traditional sources of media and why they're still important and how to utilize them for movement building. Just to make that distinction clear for our listeners, the difference between paid media and earned media, because we've talked about paid media before on this podcast, is paid media is the content, obviously, that you pay for upfront in advance, whereas earned media is when you get coverage. So paid media could be, as Joe mentioned, things like TV spots, radio spots, print ads, digital mail, etc., where your campaign or your organization is really paying directly for these assets to get your message in front of your audience. Whereas the earned media, right, is you're using these traditional or newer forms of media like blogs and things to get your campaigns covered by like a publication or a news source who often is seen as a trusted messenger to reach a broader audience that should maybe be involved in your campaign or your effort. So just making that distinction clear for our listeners about what we're talking about. And what I'll say is, is that... Often these days we talk about social media, but one of the best things to get good social media coverage is to actually have earned media coverage. That your sort of cue with voters, your engagement with voters, your authority with voters and with just constituents in general will rise as you get more traditional media coverage. So it sort of lifts your boat in a really big way. And I think sometimes people just think, I'm just going to focus on social media and that's all I need. Well, the way to get really good social media is to get good earned media. It's not one or the other and you have to do both. And so this is a really important point. And I think to your point, right, like you want them to also work hand in hand. If you don't think you're getting coverage and you can do something really cool on social media that starts getting traction, you may then get covered by traditional and vice versa, right? If you do something that gets picked up by traditional media, it will likely give you some really good content for your social channels as well. Now, Joe, I know in, in our conversations, right, you have utilized traditional media in some really fun ways and have some cool stories. And I want to make sure that our listeners get to hear those. So will you regale us with some of your tales of old? <laughs> of, of Yes, old man press stories. And what I'll also say is we continually at the campaign workshop work with traditional media. We work with organizations that are figuring out how to engage that and whether that's in training aspect or strategy, it is important, right? I will say that what has happened in life is there's less and less traditional media. We're going to dig into that more, but what is there is still really important and it is important to grow it. And back in the day when I was doing press on campaigns, I knew firsthand that the best way to really show momentum in political campaigns was 
to really work with earned media and do it in a fun way. So I did things like delivered lunches to radio stations and had candidates standing outside with Santa Claus hats and sending poems to the Washington Post and getting on the front page of the Metro section, trying to do fun things like that. And what I have found with our advocacy clients and even with political clients is that people don't always think about earned media and it's an afterthought. And I think making sure that when you're sending out emails to your list, especially if you're using email in a small race as a way to get message out, making sure the press are on those emails lists. So you're getting your message out all the time. Believe it or not, folks will cover it. You are doing advocacy work in a state capital. Add the press to those emails that you're sending out on advocacy. They will cover it. You're doing events Invite the press. I think often what happens is we have this fear of the press, and therefore we get upset that we don't get any coverage because we exclude the press. So it becomes this self-fulfilling thing. I mean, you want to be careful. You want to make sure that, you know, at these events, your message is clear when you're sending stuff out, that your message is really thoughtful and you're very strategic in what you're saying. But one of the things coming from a traditional press background, I think I've become better and better at messaging because of it. Because I don't think of, oh, we're just communicating the voters. We're just communicating to the press. It's really in some ways the same thing. Often these people are voters, they're constituents. And if you can engage them, they see that and feel that. And that can be really powerful. We do a lot of training with advocacy groups and organizations. And one of the things that we train on is earned media, but particularly how to some tools in which you can utilize to make it more effective and really help you reach your goals. And I think first and foremost, when you're thinking about engaging traditional media, they are looking for stories. The way that the news puts out information is through storytelling. And so you really want to have a really good understanding of what is the narrative you're creating? What is the story you're telling? Who is the face of that story? What is your issue or the people that your issue is impacting? What are those stories? And really pay attention the next time you listen to the news for those storytelling pieces. So the next time your organization is trying to get in front of traditional media and get picked up, you're providing that sort of same template and archetype. The other thing you want to be thinking about is how are you intertwining your advocacy strategy with your communication strategy, right? I feel like very often we work with groups and organizations where your government affairs is over here and your comms is over here, or your grassroots team is over here and your comms is over here. And those folks should really be talking to each other to help create good organizing tactics to connect to your audience. We work with Giffords in the gun violence prevention space, and I think they've done a really amazing job of thinking of different types of messengers, thinking of different types of stories from the lens of the former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords and the work she does for the lens of survivors of gun violence to gun owners who want to be responsible gun owners and are pro-gun reform. They're thinking of these different hooks and different storylines and different narratives that go hand in hand with the advocacy work that you're doing. So we often talk about you've got to have a hook. And Joe, everybody's heard of this gotcha media, where the news is only trying to figure out what's the drama behind the story. But what are some things our listeners really should consider as they're trying to engage media and thinking about what's that story? What's that hook? How to not get sort of trapped up in what the media wants to cover versus what the story is? Well, so first, there are fewer reporters than there have ever been. We have a lovely blog post at thecampaignworkshop.com that's about media consolidation. I could do a good 60 minutes on that. I'm not gonna, but feel free to read it. I think it's really important. So reporters are more and more stretched. So you have to be really direct and very clear about what your message is and why it's important to the audience that that reporter reaches and why it makes a good story. I don't actually consider that gotcha. I consider that to be just a good business practice for an advocacy group. Know your message. Make sure you've done your message box. Make sure you're really clear about what you're going to say and say it again and again and again. And make sure that the reporter has a real reason to cover you. If it's not news, they're not going to cover you. Send them news and you will get covered. The other pieces here is that, you know, like I think people often think that, Media is looking just for like clickbait stories. 
I think they're just looking for stories. So if you have an emotional component to it, if you have people that are really telling their story that you've put that in a way that it's just not the president of the organization, that it's not like there are times where the president of the organization has a very compelling story that can be great. But sometimes it's just a member of the organization that has a really compelling story. And make sure you're thinking about how does the audience of that publication match the storyteller and putting those together can be really powerful. So thinking about that and then this hook idea. Yes, you need a hook, which usually should be your message. And it has to be clear. If what you're saying isn't clear to you, it's not going to be clear to the reporter. Sometimes I think folks send the reporter like a two-page press release and are like, here's some stuff, figure it out. They don't have time to do that. You have to figure it out for them. And that's really, really important. Um, And you want to be able to connect the dots for them, right? Like make it easy for them. Your issue sometimes and very often is not at the forefront of the consciousness of like the public sphere. And you have to figure out how do you connect it to that? If we're talking about COVID, a lot of groups and organizations were able to pivot their messaging very quickly to figure out how does the environmental impact of COVID happen? How does mental health happen? How does all of these different issues that were LGBTQ rights, women's rights, there were so many different ways that groups and organizations were able to connect to what was at the front of mind of folks. And I think that's what Joe's talking about. How do you connect your story to what's happening so the reporter feels like it's relevant and urgent, but there's also a hook there that is core to your message. And build a relationship with the reporter. Every story that you do, every press release you have is not going to be a right fit for the publication. Know that. But when you think it is, then be very clear with the reporter, with follow-up, with engagement to say, I really think this fits your publication and here's why. I really think this fits your TV show and here's why. But you can't do that every week. You have to pick and choose when you think it's the right time to engage with these specific reporters about a specific thing. And I think lastly is remember who you're talking to when you're utilizing traditional media. You may be thinking, oh, I'm talking to all of their listeners, and you're not. You're talking to the audience you want to be talking to. You're just using them as the vehicle to get that message out. So always remember and don't backstep your core message because you're doing it on a TV show or through a newspaper and you think you have to pivot to talk to their audience. No, you're still talking to your target audience. Yeah. And again, that means doing the work up front to make sure you know how to talk to you. You know what your message is and you know who your audience is. And that's not always the case. And sometimes people don't do that homework ahead of time when doing traditional media outreach. And that will really work for you if you do it. So there are definitely some challenges in using media sometimes. And sometimes, particularly if you're a small organization, you're like, can I even afford or does it even make sense for me to do this? Well, I'm really excited because our upcoming interview with Marina Ubiña, who is, again, a dear friend of mine, has spent her career balancing both the hook plus the staying true to themselves, discovering how to use media effectively. She has a bunch of really great insights on it. So please stay tuned as we dig in deeper to this topic. And we'll be right back. And we're back. I am super excited about today's episode. Guest is one of my favorite humans, Maria Jose Rubina. Maria works for Indivisible, which some of you may have heard of. It's an organization that was founded after Trump's 2016 election. And as a progressive grassroots campaign, they work on electing progressive leaders, defending democracy, and building power through collective action. Maria is currently serving as the organization's managing director, which is overseeing the internal culture of the organization but previously has a plethora of experience in working with a voter engagement organization called Voto Latino, where we got to work alongside one another, and spent seven years working for Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. She has also served in numerous capacities in several election cycles in political engagement and coalition roles as well. Mari, it's so good to see you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. It's so good to see you. And you always bring the eyewear. So I feel like it's always a treat, Martin. Yes. For the listeners who can't see, Maddie's Zoom background is pretty, pretty amazing. We may have to post a picture in the uh, in the show notes with it. <laughs> but we start all of our episodes because as folks who went through the sort of traditional education space or not, you never really understand 
how people end up in these sort of political roles, because it's not really talked about even as a political science major. So we often start these conversations with just letting you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and sort of how you ended up here at Invisible. Well, I was in fifth grade and I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Right. I'm not going to take you all the way back. But one thing to share that I've always been, I've always been kind of nerdy and I've always wanted to be in community with my peers in some form. I can track back to even that early age to, to sort of organizing my classrooms and all the way through undergrad. And here we are. I come to Indivisible by way of training largely within huge institutions like the Senate. I was applying to a public policy fellowship right after undergraduate school that specifically focused on young Latinos interested in public policy at the federal level. And at the time, this might sound like super old school, but no one got paid for internships. And so I'm the daughter of factory workers, and there was no way I was going to make my way to D.C. without a lot of support. So I got into the CHGI Fellowship. I moved to D.C. in 2008, which if anyone lives in D.C. or lived in D.C. in that era, it was like the really yummy Drake era. It was like you went to U Street and there was still a lot of vibrant culture and music, and it wasn't what you see now sometimes. And so anyways, I just feel really lucky to have come to D.C. at a time that the the city was welcoming its first Black president. And so anyways, it was such a fun, vibrant time to come to Washington. That was the same year I moved there. It was a moment. (laughs) Yes, it was so fun. And I started as a public policy fellow, which just meant I was doing a lot of research and writing memos for, at the time, the new senior advisor to Senator Reid on Latino and Asian affairs I was pretty neat about the role back then that I think you see a lot more nowadays because we understand our struggles to be interconnected. But back then, I think folks didn't have as much of a rigor around this stuff. Angela had just been hired. This was 08. The senator was going to be up for his reelect in 2010. And so you start really staffing up with some folks who you're going to need in your corner. And Angela, I feel so lucky, y'all. My first boss in the Senate was Latina, queer, immigrant like red lipstick, bright, beautiful, dynamic colors. And Angela, you know, being at that time, I was 22, right out of University of Nevada, Reno, go wolf pack, you know, just like I would consider myself like a small town girl. I grew up in Carson City, Nevada, which is a smaller mountain west town. And here I was in this place that very much felt like Ugly Betty. I felt like Ugly Betty there. I was like, what am I doing? Is this, you know, JCPenney's outfit, the look? Like I was so lost. And I had this woman who invested in me and poured into me and gave me honest feedback and helped me grow. And so anyways, I, I started as her ledge fellow and I stayed on the legislative team first as a correspondent, then as a correspondence manager, then helped our immigration team when we worked on the bipartisan legislative bill that got passed in the Senate in 2013. And by then, Angela was like, hey, homegirl, like, I think you're ready for a big girl promotion. And she was getting ready to leave the Hill and push me to put my name in for her position. And so I cut all my hair, I bought Ann Taylor dresses, and I was like, here I go. <laughs> right. We Devil Wars proud of this and like leveled up. <laughs> and yeah. And so in my final like year and a half, maybe a little more, I got to work at a senior advisor level, which was tremendous. And I, I learned a ton and I got to work on issues that I care deeply about and always have, you know, specifically on how issues interact with immigration. So how does healthcare interact with immigration? How does tax policy interact with immigration? And then also was thinking about just at a constituency level, how were national advocacy groups and Nevada advocacy groups that service Latino and API communities, how were they being engaged within the Senate Democratic Caucus? That was my job to sort of make sure that they had a real relationship with the caucus and also that we were we were listening and talking to the right folks as we were making decisions that affected a lot of these communities. But I'll tell you one thing I learned pretty early and consistently was that for a lot of our fights, there was still a lot of power to build on the outside, given the negotiations and how they would land. And so once Senator Reed, RIP, greatest boss ever, once he had announced that he was retiring, 
in 2015, I wanted to work on the outside. I wanted to see if I could be part of building power and capacity on the outside. And by outside, I mean outside of government. And that's when I headed over to Otto Latino, worked there for the 16 cycle and learned a ton. Specifically, I learned a ton about how we flatten and reduce voter communities. You know, it's like, that's what women want. That's what Latinos want. It was really fun because working at VL and learning from Maria Teresa, I learned a lot about her surgical approach to it, which was how do young Latinos in the U.S. who are aging into this electorate, what are their behaviors and attitudes? That comes with a different set of assumptions than Latinos who have established voting behaviors or Latinos who maybe are more part of a diaspora community, you know, whatever. But there's other in the same way that other voters are multifaceted. So we're young Latinos. And then I also learned a lot there about just how to modernize civic engagement so that it was really like people focused and culture focused and tech focused. That was a tough cycle, as we all may remember, the 2016 cycle. Oh, <laughs> um, we don't want to remember. But exactly. <laughs> so I here I was, I thought I was going to get a break after that cycle. And some of my former colleagues from the Senate had come together to organize against Donald Trump's threat to immigrant communities. And there was sort of this like hub or war room, if you will, of folks who were coordinating just like all of our networks, our resources, our relationships, so that we could be in support of immigrant communities right at the start of the Trump administration. And that's where I was helping with that effort over at what now is the Immigration Hub. And so those were all my like former colleagues from, you know, shout out to Tyler, who I got to work and learn a ton from. I was there when this bright-eyed fella walks in to talk to one of our partners at the Immigration Hub at the time to talk about this this guide that had gone viral at the time. And I always feel, and Martina, I'm curious your take, I feel like a good indicator for how resonant and real something is, is if I hear about it outside of the Beltway first, or as we call it, in the wild. And I had heard about the Indivisible Guide for the first time talking to my husband's aunt, who's a writer and a community college teacher in New England, And she's like, I read this thing. You guys worked on the Hill. What do you think about the advice that's in there? And Chris and I read it. We had not seen it yet. We read it and we're like, this is good advice. Why didn't we write? You know, it was like, this is really straightforward, pragmatic, but solid advice. So it was cool to have learned about the Invisible Guide in in the wild. And then, you know, a couple months later, I met Ezra and I was peppering him with hard questions about how he was planning to electoralize this swell of activists and new energy into our movement. And uh, he's like, wow, those are great questions. Why don't you come help us figure them out? And when Mari says great questions, I have sat in meetings with Mari and the questions that she delivers are so smart and so direct and poignant that the person like can't sort of like get around them or like give you a fluff answer. It's quite genius. And you really need to do a masterclass on how you do that. But agreed, right? Like I was working at Wellstone Action, which is now Repower at the time. I was actually out in the space. It was like one of the things that got me out of the like deep depression I was in once mm-hmm. people will not be named got elected to like go see the like energy in cities all across this country of people who are like, no. And that's where I heard about the indivisible guy. It was popping up in different trainings. And we were like, what is this? And how do we, how do we engage with this? And what does this mean? And then you all really formalized it. And it's been fantastic to see. Well, that's why I really appreciate also your, the topic of conversation and that it's about movement and movement building. And a thing we think a lot about now that we're six, seven, almost seven years, you know. Isn't that wild? <laughs> that, yeah. And we have to think a lot about durability and what keeps a movement healthy, what keeps us durable, what keeps us in the fight. What, what are the leadership pipelines that we build so that we're bringing new leaders into the fight? You know, I've been here for, gosh, almost as long as I was with Senator Reid, which feels wild because that felt like my longest service. And one of the things that feels really interesting in new ways, depending on which cycle we're in, is that, you know, there's always political threats. There's always new political realities. And for me, it's twofold. One, when you are in partnership and dialogue with a movement of people, you have to have done some rigorous thinking 
like that's pretty sacred, right? You are in relationship with people that they expect to hear from you. You expect to hear from them. And there's this level of just like ongoing stewardship and respect. And and you have to be in a cadence when you're responsive to people across this country. And I think that's one thing that makes this work for me feel really exciting and fresh and nourishing. But even if it is really hard, And I also think that for me, being part of a a movement community in like a very professional sense in a way that I commit my work and life to it, I also think like that's why I can be hopeful. That's why I have a practice and hope. That's why I believe that conditions, while they are real and they are hard and they are in front of us, they are movable and they are changeable. And that only happens if a bunch of us take action and do a thing. It helps me not be cynical. And I think that that's what, it's the salve, you know, it's like what keeps us fighting and, and nourishing. Which is saying a lot, given how quickly people can become cynical in spaces that we hold. But I mean, like throughout your career, right, like whether it was in the Senate, whether it was Voto Latino, which is what you're doing now, you have always in some way engaged with traditional media, right? And thinking through how do you message and frame and utilize the media in a way to movement build and bring more folks into the fold. Can you talk a little bit about how traditional media can be used in a larger campaign or sort of engagement strategy and how you've seen it be successful? Yeah, I'll do one quick version on just some observations I had working for Senator Reid, because I do think he was stellar at this and his teams were stellar at this. I always really admired that he would tour all these little radio stations and all these little newsrooms. You know, sometimes you'd be like, this little newsroom is so tiny and here he is touring it. Right. And I got to say, when you're from a small state like Nevada, some of these engagement practices are more in reach. But still, I mean, he had an early practice of engaging constituency media, which just means like media that is specific to a community, either by language or other things that connect them. Right. And he would go and he'd tour this little like El Sol radio station and he would take questions even if he didn't speak Spanish and always understood that like his people needed to hear from him and he needed to have like a real strategy around that. So I always really admired that because I thought, gosh, he's going to all these little nooks and places. And I think that was part of what created such a long term relationship with his constituents and his voters. I would say at Indivisible You know, when you think about our story of origin, we're like a model that's all about democratizing how you do activism, right? It's all about saying like, no matter where you are, no matter where you live with a certain set of tools and things that people will learn on their own as they do the work, you can create a verberation, you can create a conversation that leads to change. You know this because you've worked with candidates and help candidates run. The thing they care about is local clips. Right. There are other reasons they might care about national press. It helps them with fundraising. It helps them distinguish themselves, practice their story. But when they want to know, how am I being perceived? What do my constituents think about me? Our model really understood that as a bunch of staffers in, in our origin who were former Hill staff, who worked for members, who worked for candidates. And so we were clear that our constituent model was about leveraging local voices at scale. Right. And in key moments. And I think that's the other thing that for us in terms of movement is is really important. In 2022, we had I think we had about 100 news clips a month on average. When you think about like what kind of scaled conversation that creates, that's power. Right. And so huge. huge, huge. And so when I think about us as a community that leverages media to do good organizing, I think it's really, really interconnected. I think about, for example, right now, Republicans are threatening to default and we'll see how they vote this week on it. But a tool that was really helpful for folks who have Democratic members, right? Like maybe they don't have a Republican member of Congress right now that they can weigh in with. And if they had a Democratic member, one really key organizing tool we had was just to get Say, hey, get your member on this Democratic letter. It was led by Congresswoman Jayapal. Get them on this letter because then that is then your hook for talking to your member and pushing them in a certain direction. And then at the national level, it's our hook for saying, hey, look, Dems are united. We're united with President Biden. Dems have their shit together. The other folks don't. And so 
Now, what can we do that? Now we can tell another story, a broader story, a, you know, more strategic story about what's happening on the Hill. And so I use that as like, sometimes it's really important to understand how your ledge strategy, right? Your advocacy strategy interacts with your comm strategy interacts. It results in really good organizing. It's just like another thing to connect with our sort of distributed constituent model. Often when we think of traditional media, we think of the big names, right? We think of the CNNs and the MSNBCs and the sort of national broadcasts. But I love that even in your example of Senator Reid, to be able to utilize your local station, radio, TV, newspaper, whatever it may be, right, is still super powerful and can be super strategic. So can you talk a little bit about sort of how do you use traditional media in that expansive sense as a tool for movement building, regardless of the size of the sort of effort or campaign you're working on? Yeah, that's such a good question. So one thing to know is like for us, so much of how we've trained ourselves and and trained within the movement is to always move with the understanding that earning media in our organizing is going to result in the outcomes we're driving towards, right? So I don't know if y'all saw the broccoli, the people dressed up in broccoli during the Senate race in Pennsylvania. Yes. Those ladies were new indivisible activists in that area. And it was, you know, they saw something on the news. They wore the broccoli outfits. A local blogger got wind of it, shared it on the blog. The Fetterman team picked up that blog and they spread it everywhere. Right. And, and so if even in just that example, you can see, right, like savvy and rapid responding media consumers, activists who understand like what is being talked about in the time, how they can help anticipate a moment to make it a bigger moment. And that's that's the ball game, y'all. Like that is what goes into when people say you got to define your opponent. That is like such a dope example of defining your opponent. And a lot of times when folks talk about it, they think that, you know, it happens in that first year, you bring down their popularity and, and that's true. But I think what's fun about being part of a movement that is agile and hard hitting is that you could also be creating those moments along the way, even once you're past the, you know, once all the big money people have come in and bought commercials, right? It's like the thing that I know to be true in my bones is that local folks who know their communities who, who have these sensibilities from a personal thing. Like, what? why does this upset you? How is this going to affect your community, your neighborhood? And they're talking about it from that lens. Like, they're going to get an even better hit. And I think that's another thing to just be really open about. It's like, that's why we're really, from the beginning, we had to contend with the reality that folks know what's best for them locally. And so we were never going to be like a national top down thing, we're always going to be like folks who, who partner with each other, who learn from each other and who do not need to be in like tension about, yeah, you're going to want to be with us on a big campaign on the debt ceiling. Right. And, and calling out MAGA extremism, but actually the way that is most effective to do that locally is to find examples of how that's really resonant in your own community. You touched on it a little bit, but like with this abundance of media that we now have at our fingertips, right? And this like 24 second news cycle, everybody's sort of trying to keep peace with. What are some effective ways that you have found to really cut through that noise? I know it's sort of like dependent on the current events or whatever the type of campaign you're running are, but like, are there any sort of through lines that you see that listeners should be considering as as they want to engage with earned media? Well, I am a total Gemini and an immigrant, so I'm all about like duality, right? Like, I'm, like I love it. I love it. And one thing that I will say, just me, Maddie, that I approach when I do a hit is to ground in movement, because to me, that is when I'm grounded in movement, I am offering folks real insights that they may not get in other places, right? So when I do a national hit. I think it's really important both for what I'm offering in terms of shaping the conversation to offer inputs from, hey, listen, like I wasn't making calls to Pennsylvania this Saturday and here's what I learned. Or, hey, I was hearing from indivisibles in Arizona and here's how they're gearing up on this ballot initiative. Here's what's hard about it. Here's what they're really excited about. Right. And then you're offering that texture. To me, it feels farther away from just punditry that then I do think people kind of you know, they turn it on to do, to make their dinner. And so I would say that's one thing that I really hold. And and then the other side of that is for us in terms of movement and, and why we would care about a big national hit like that is because then 
you're reflecting back to movement community. This is me sitting here, but this is our story, right? And you're reflecting back that power. You're reflecting back that sort of validation of our theories for telling stories and organizing that our perspectives are at the table. And I also think that has like a really important effect on the work and on the people feeling like re-energized. And one of my favorites is, and Ezra does this really well, is like getting to shout out the folks who are really like creating these kind of lightning in a bottle moments across the map is obviously like one of the best parts of getting to do a hit like that. But I certainly think like when I've done hits and when I'm on a panel, I just try to go back to like, what do I personally bring to this as an insight in all the lived experience I have, but also how do I help folks make sense of it from a, a from a broader movement community perspective um, that they may not be hearing from these other spokespeople? I often find it energizing as somebody who writes day in and day out sort of working in this space to be like, when I see somebody on there, I'm like, oh yeah, that's a perspective I haven't heard before. And you're like, that's me. Great. Okay. We are making some headway here. Like we are making progress and we are seeing that change. And and not only am I seeing it, but folks across the country are seeing it. Folks yes. across the globe are seeing it, right? Yes. Yes. You are reflecting back some of that hope, right? Which is the medicine. Absolutely. And very often needed. On the flip side of that, like, are there common sort of challenges or mistakes that folks have made when they have like first started trying to engage in the media space? And like, what are your top hits there? So one, I I think this is now I'm realizing a theme. My through line is like, you can only be yourself, right? And I'm saying that to myself right now. Y'all may experience this, right? At an organization, in a movement, there's going to be different spokespeople. There's going to be different folks who are tapped depending on the story, depending on what you're trying to achieve, right? And you can only do it in the way that feels authentic to you and the way that you feel kind of brings out your best thinking and your best storytelling. And so what that means tangibly is like, don't try to do it like someone else, right? Like, you know, you, you know, when you're having a conversation with someone at the door on an MSNBC hit or like on a panel, right? When you can feel when you are in the pocket of yourself. So I would start with that. And then I would also say, and this is a challenge for myself. So the thing that I find really hard about engaging with the media is that conflict is part of the incentive structure. And I get that. And my vibe, it's more of like a Diet Coke with conflict. You know, it's a little more like, yes, and like, how can I help people find things that they might feel are actually overlapping things that are things that they have in common, that are things that unify us to a more hopeful perspective versus over-focusing on the conflict. I want people to focus on the hope, the solution, the thing that puts that we're looking to ahead of us. And so sometimes, let's be honest, if you don't give a sexy quote, you don't give a fiery quote, if you don't bring the spice, they're not going to cover you. <laughs> so that's not always true, but it's pretty true. And so I find that sometimes my desire to bring texture to conversations, it's like, hmm. Let's just like edit all of that out. <laughs> yeah. And, and and like you have to sort of hold both of those things, right? Like you have to be able to be like, okay, how do I present this like hopeful unified vision while also knowing how the game is played so that you can be able to then deliver that hopeful unifying message? That's right. Because in the end, right, the, in the end, all of this work, even though you bring your your best thinking to it. It's about a greater good. It's about being part of a collective solution. And so you're right. It's like, even though that's my edge, right? It's like, how can I sharpen my contrast? How can I sharpen the conflict? That is what folks are going to be drawn to. Like that is my rigor and wanting to be effective in storytelling is not about is Mari hitting it. It's about, are we collectively being effective organizers to drive the social change we all craved? We have seen only in our work careers ample change. Talking about moving to D.C. in 2008, right, we saw Obama era, which changed the game. We then saw Trump era, which also changed the game in a different way. We're living through the tail ends of a pandemic. So much has changed. Like, Have you seen trends in the media industry also change? And how has that really impacted our ability to use it for movement building? I mean, usually when we're talking trends, like I feel like they're pretty solemn. But I would say that some of the cuts that we've all seen in newsrooms, especially local newsrooms, are tough. Like we have folks who are 
literally in almost every single congressional district in this country. And that includes really rural ones. And the, the lack of media infrastructure in rural places, the lack of just like technological infrastructure, I think also creates some challenges to folks feeling connected in rural areas, folks feeling like they're getting the stories reflected back in rural areas. So we try to think of like, where can we be even more helpful in doing both creating community and also being like, hey, reporters, we have some folks from these areas, just so you know, and because it might be a harder, it might just be harder to achieve that kind of media engagement when you're in places that have a lot less infrastructure now. And obviously, I think the ways in which, again, this is why I talk a lot about what brings me hope and and why movement organizing is a key to that for me is it's kind of in vogue to be snarky. And that's it's just not my vibe. Like, very personally, I find it to be boring. I think in terms of just like a, a cultural trend, a media aesthetic trend, what makes me curious where I perk up is hearing people offer specifics about change, specifics about how we're going to get there, how we're going to be effective. And yes, yeah, still holding what's hard about it, but not sort of just flatlining to their doom circle. Right. And so then I would say, what kind of practices actually do you need to be in a relationship with the media to have a healthy perspective? Right. Does that mean you actually got to turn down your Twitter some days? Does that mean that actually you're going to broaden the type of news consumption you have? Does that mean that actually you're going to you're going to start picking up the paper or subscribing to a, a, a paper that like really needs support? Again, it's sort of also interrogating how we maintain healthy levels of consumption so that it all doesn't feel so heavy or bad. I have over the last couple of years very much so limited my consumption because I feel like every time I get a news alert or a look at the even listening to NPR, like it's just always like uh, not a great way to start my day again. But <laughs> but you need to be informed, but, but to what extent? Absolutely. You've shared a couple of them with us already, but do you have any examples that can really illustrate how the use of media can help bolster a campaign and and bring it across the finish line in terms of success? A recent example, actually, where Indivisible and Working Families Party teamed up to weigh in with their congressman, Mike Lawler, who's a freshman in a battleground house district and who had been attending a fundraiser with Kevin McCarthy at this like fancy restaurant. And folks were they got on TV outside of this fancy fundraiser and they were demanding to know his positions on protecting Social Security and, and his positions on not raising the retirement age. And it was amazing because then he obviously felt like he had to respond. It made it a whole to do. He responded with a statement, did a video, wrote a column, and we continue to push him. And we're going to obviously be pushing him a lot this week. But one you know specific example that's also really timely about how, again, it's like if you're in this constituent model, right, it's one of the most powerful ways to push your members of Congress like that, even though at times that might feel like really that, like, yes, like paying attention to what they're doing, letting members know that you're paying attention to what they're doing, being timely, strategic, responsive, being fast, and then really letting them know what the perception is of them in their district so that they understand what's at stake for you and your family does work and does push them to have to make commitments and Martin, you know this as an organizer, right? And a campaigner, if the commitments aren't made publicly, they're not really made. Mm-hmm. Yep. You got to get that on paper and you got to post it somewhere that people can see it. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I have one last question for you, which we also ask our folks just to continue to broaden the learnings of our listeners. Any books, TV shows, movies, podcasts that you're totally digging right now? Yes. I just started Odd Years. And some folks might know Amy, she runs the Cook Political Report. So that's my one right now. I, I have to every cycle do a refresh of which political podcast I'm taking in because otherwise, let's just say I'm a Gemini, I like to keep it fresh. We'll just say that. But she, specifically, I would point to her episode that she did with Anna Greenberg, who's a pollster. And they they talk about the results of the last midterm election. And I will be honest, even though I'm married to a strategic communications political consultant, I find sometimes the folks who are in D.C. largely can have takes that haven't been refreshed with inputs from the ground in a consistent way. And so sometimes when I listen to some of the political commentary, 
it can be tough. I thought Amy um, and Anna had a really vibrant, thorough, strategic conversation about things that I think perhaps lots of folks could just quickly flatten because they're not being rigorous enough. So I would say check out that episode. It was really, really sharp. And then in offering some of the advice I offered earlier, which is like broaden your inputs. I love music history podcasts. I listen to Alt Latino and Radio Menea. I feel like if I can listen to podcasts that invoke learning about something completely different, but also not because music is personal and political, I just find to be super soothing and nourishing. I won't give you my whole list, but if you haven't read The Sum of Us by Heather McGee, it's a great, like one of the smartest pieces I've read on understanding how folks get divided across lines of race and class and how, in fact, we should all have class and race solidarity to to create the democracy we all deserve. So absolutely, The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker. I actually listen to most of my books now. I listen to this during COVID and I love culture building. I think it's really important. Like I'm that girl who doesn't like when you BCC because then like you're not letting folks know like, oh gosh, is like the girl I met at the last party or is that cutie pie going to be there? You know, you just kind of like give people a chance to be set up for success. Even in- social- Do I got to look cute when I show up? Like, <laughs> So anyways, I love that The Art of Gathering was- is definitely one of the, the hottest takes on why it matters to create communities of connection with the same level of strategy that you would take in, you know, other parts of your life. And then I got to shout out Leah and Ezra, our co-founders at Indivisible. They wrote a book about democracy. They wrote a book really lifting up the stories of our movement all across the U.S. And I, so I highly recommend that one. And the last thing I would say to folks, if you're like, I really need a reset because this stuff is hard poetry. I don't know if you listen to it, if you read it, if you write it. I love listening to it. When I'm stuck at work and I need to be re-energized, I I keep my little poetry books just like at my desk and I read them. I love that. Yeah, and I read them. So let's see, I'm going to read you one. Please. (laughs) Um, This is Yupil Chizala and I come back to her words a lot. Darling, You have to do it with intention or not do it at all. Practicing joy with only half your heart is as good as daring darkness. That's it. And that's from A Fire Like You. A Fire Like You. I'm going to pick up that one. Mari, it has been so incredible to obviously just share space with you again. It always is. I feel like I learn something every time our paths cross, which is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being on. Thank you for your years of service to communities across the country and for sharing your brilliance on this episode. If folks want to learn more about you or Indivisible, how can they do that? Great. You can follow me on Twitter. I am at Tia, like Tia, Mari, 489, because I should have let someone else do my Twitter, but that was me, an AOL kid through and through. (laughs) So Tia Mari, 489, on Twitter or Mari would be now on Twitter, I think. And then please follow us, indivisible.org. Take action with us. If you're in that vibe where you're like, ah, everything's hard. We got something for you, whether your member is from a blue place, a red place or a purple place. So check us out at indivisible.org. And we're also really active on Twitter. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And listeners, we'll be right back. And we're back. It's always a great time getting to speak to Maria because she's just such a fun human. But I think going over some highlights of that interview, and we continue to beat this drum because it's something that as a person who's obsessed about leadership development and opportunities, that there is no one way to end up in a career space. And Maria is a perfect example of how she was able to jump from congressional stuff to organizing stuff to within a nonprofit organization to working on the outside, right? So just know that there are a number of different ways in which you can be involved in this democratic, political sort of democracy work. We want to continue to highlight those paths for you as listeners. But she also really digs in to not only the importance of traditional media, but also thinking locally. One of her big tips was it's never too small of an effort or a campaign to engage your local media. 
understanding again who that audience is you're talking to is going to give you really good insight on this doesn't need to be on CNN or MSNBC. This can be in your local city paper, your neighborhood city paper, your local radio stations. But it goes back to that building those relationships, knowing who's covering those beats and those topics understanding what your hook is and your story that you're telling to really set yourself up for success in that way so that you're able to utilize those audiences and those tools to get your message out. I think I really also appreciated, and this is something I've always appreciated about Maria, is she's always been grounded in the movement. She always comes back to centering the folks who are being impacted by the work and ensuring that those folks feel supported, that those folks have the resources that they need. And she's never feeling like she's exploiting those folks in order to get that hook or get that story, that she's really understanding that as a person who continuously is on TV and is in the media, that she's not selling out her folks and her people in order to get a story. And she's really deeply rooted in that. And I know we talked about at the beginning of this sort of like gotcha media. And I really appreciate her take on how do you understand the beast that is the media, right? Who does want listenership and readership and all the other things, but your ability to really stay true to yourself and your values and the story that you were there to tell and the people that you were there to talk to, even while trying to be cutting edge and ensuring that the media is going to keep calling you back because you want your story to be told. It is a fine balance, but I think she does a really amazing job of staying true to herself, protecting her folks, getting her message out there, while also being a really great spokesperson for the issues that she's working on. That's great. And it's awesome that we're able to get these fantastic guests who are willing to share sort of their story and how they do it. One of the things that I heard was that social media can be useful but that traditional media is one of the best ways to amplify your social media presence. And one of the things that she talked about was this idea of local media. And I think you really want to think of local media as a ladder to get more and more coverage. One of the best tactics that I was ever taught in doing press was that you can start with the smallest outlets and engage those outlets and then send that coverage around to get more and more coverage from other people. And so thinking of it as a ladder and thinking of how press begets more press can be really powerful. Don't worry about which outlet you're in. Make sure that it speaks to your audience and then make sure your message is clear and just keep going. But that is, to me, pretty incredible and really important. And then the other pieces were how these media platforms have social extensions and that can really grow your social presence. And so know that and that can really just help give you credibility and more coverage, which is important. I have just found that organizations, especially in the movement space, build that credibility through being really thoughtful about their coverage and their message. We're going to continue to bring these guests in and have them share their brilliance and their expertise. And Joe and I are going to continue to ask them tough questions. And so thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you have any questions or comments about movement building through media, check out our website at thecampaignworkshop.com. Our information can also be found in this episode show description. And be sure to like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned for next week's episode on movement building through storytelling. Until next time, this is Martin Diego Garcia and Joe Fold breaking down how to win a campaign. How to win a campaign is Joe Fold, Martin Diego Garcia, Elizabeth Rowe, Phoebe Retta, Evan Wilkerson, and Vienna O'Brien. Music by Daniel Pinto. Audio editing by Christopher Lang. Special thanks to the team at the Campaign Workshop. Please review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.